This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Hello, this is the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. Uh, this afternoon's recording is going to be something of a break from convention. This afternoon, I won't just be interviewing one of the world's leading playwrights, but two of them together. Joe Pennell first came to wide recognition in 1994 when his play Some Voices was produced down the corridor from this room in the celebrated theatre upstairs, a passionate bruising study of love and brotherhood and illness and survival. It launched a career that has seen Joe work in the world's leading theatres and write with phenomenal success for television and film. His musical Sunny Afternoon is thriving in the West End after cleaning up at last year's Olivier Awards. His films include Road and Enduring Love. He has seen massive acclaim for his television series Moses Jones and The Long Firm. His multi-award winning 2000 play Blue Orange has just been revived with startling force at the Young Vic, but it is here, I think, at the Royal Court with plays like Pale Horse, Dumb Show, Haunted Child and Birthday that Joe has continued to push himself and cement his reputation as one of the world's leading dramatists for stage. Dennis Kelly, too, is, I think, one of Britain's most significant living playwrights. It's something of an anomaly, and I think a fascinating one, that his work has rarely been staged here. His Royal Court debut, his first play, produced by current artistic director Vicky Featherstone, The Ritual Slaughter of George Mostromus, opened here in 2013, but was actually his ninth major play. His coruscating lyrical debut, Debris, opened at the Theatre 503 in 2003, and in the following 12 years, his plays, amongst which are Orphans After the End, Osama the Hero and Love and Money, have been celebrated for their savagery and intelligence, searing wit and restless formal exploration and produced all over the world. His television series Pulling and Utopia have been hailed as masterpieces of the form. His musical collaboration with Tim Minchin, Matilda, a musical based on Roald Dahl's much-loved novel, has been a magnificent success both commercially and critically on the West End and Broadway for the duration of this decade. Both Joe and Dennis are writers I admire greatly. Both are mates and both are here with me now. Joe, Dennis, welcome to the Royal Court. (laughs) Hello, mate. I think we'll just go home after that. Yeah, I'm done. That's the best review I've ever had. Me too. I thought he was going to go, after your one, I thought he was going to go, and Dennis Kelly. I thought he was going to do all your one, and Dennis Kelly. I just sort of went into an endless reverie there. (laughs) Picturing. It's only seven hours to write that. I was going to... So I'm going to ask the same question to everybody I interview on these podcasts. Uh, The same first question, the same first few questions. Uh, And uh, I think Dennis should answer first. Um, which is what yeah, was the you, Joe. <laughs> yeah if you're going to rock I'm the finale no. <laughs> I'm wearing the trousers <laughs> the question the question is what, what was the first time that you went to the theatre ah uh, fuck uh, oh, the first time I went to the theatre was I went to see the young when I was about 16 I, I went out with this girl and uh, I think she uh, I, I seem to remember her dad was a diplomat or something and I don't know how I'd, I'd, I'd sort of we, I'd sort of landed this sort of quite classy girl, and I think she took it upon herself to sort of um, 
educate me a bit. I'm sounding a bit of Liza Doolittle here, but like she took me to see, she took me to see uh, um, Romeo and Juliet at the um, Young Vic, and I fucking loved it. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was amazing. What you know? do you remember loving about it? Don't, don't remember. I just remember thinking that's brilliant. That's really good. I mean, I've been to see things like pantomimes at schools and stuff like that, but I'd never actually been into a theatre, you know. I'd so never been to 16 a was, what, 1988? <sighs> Something like that, 89? I guess, yeah. Yeah, maybe 80, no, 87, I think. Okay. Probably, so you were you groomed. Know. I was groomed, groomed yeah, yeah. Woman. No, she wasn't an older woman. She was my age. <laughs> she was but just she smarter. Was just, she was a, I was groomed by a smarter woman. <laughs> right, yeah, better. a clever woman. And, um, and, 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 and Joe, what about you? What was the first time you went, do you remember going to the theatre? I think it was probably a school trip to Death of a Salesman. Right. At school in Australia or at school in the UK? Because you were raised in Australia. That was when I was in Australia, and I think I was about 15. So um, both of you came comparatively late. You weren't taken to the theatre as yeah. younger children no. to go and see or Christmas shows or pantomimes or anything like that. No. Yeah. yeah no, I think I'm from a, a remotely theatrical family. I didn't what? have any theatrical friends or yeah. anybody. It's probably why I went into it, because... Why? It was so different to everything and everyone that I knew. What about the first time you came to the Royal Court? I don't ask too many Royal Court questions, but I will ask that one. Do you remember the first thing you came to see here, uh, Joe? Um, wow. It was something small that I can't remember what it was called now. It was a little upstairs thing. Before the two thousand, uh, before the nineteen ninety six move into the West End, while they were rebuilding. This oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah so it's yeah. in the original it was, it was site in Chelsea. That, yeah, it was before that. It was, you know, I mean, at the Royal Court, the, the the early things that I saw were things like Jonathan Harvey's Babies. Right. You know, and yeah. um, I saw a play by April DeAngelis, who was my kind of young people's theatre tutor for a while. You saw her work after she'd been teaching you. Yeah, when yeah. while she was teaching me, right. she took us all down there, as one of our kind of you know um, class outings, and we saw her play Hush with um, what's his name, who's in Lord of the Rings, Andy Circus. Oh, brilliant! Wow. Um, do you remember coming here for the first time? Uh, well, yeah, but it's a bit embarrassing, really, because like, my, I mean, uh, the reason I mentioned that play uh, that I first wrote, the reason I first started writing, one of the reasons, apart from I thought well, I wanted to put myself in a play, but uh, I kind of thought there were no plays for people like me. This was the mid nineties, right? You know, I thought there's no play, and actually, I was totally wrong. There was fucking hundreds of them. It was the mid nineties. <laughs> when like, you say for people like you, like, what for, do you mean? I was in my twenties, and I, you know, I kind of felt like I wanted something that was a bit more edgy, and you know, and actually, there was tons. I just wasn't going to the right theaters. Mm. I, I, I was actually going to theater, but I was seeing stuff at the national, and I was seeing stuff in other plays. It was for, the, the first sort of really kind of interesting plays I remember seeing were like, I mean, I, I saw things like Angels in America, but I also remember seeing. Uh, train spotting at the bush and killer joe at the bush and stuff like that but for some reason I, the royal court was just off my radar so, mm. saw, so the first yeah. thing i saw was um when it was in the west end i think and it was it might have been either yard girl which fucking was brilliant and rebecca myself, yeah, girl, yeah, yeah yeah it's a beautiful yeah. play but it might have been the weir or something yeah. like that but it was it was um it wasn't in this building it was when it was in the west end so i'd kind of missed the royal court it, you know you were both then Writing for th is this right? You, you were Joe. You were writing for theatre before you started seriously engaging with new plays. What what led? Is that right? If you were being taught by April before you'd been to see her plays, <clears throat> what led you to want to? Well, I've been I've been I've been taught before I'd really seen anything 
at the court. Great, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you... I saw very little, you know, I saw very little. <clears throat> the first play that really kind of excited me that I saw at the court was The Penetrator, Anthony Nielsen. Anthony Nielsen. That's the oh, first wow. time I thought, oh, I can do this. Yeah. But I'd seen stuff, you see, I, I work for this local paper, the Hammersmith Guardian, and and I, I did, would do, I did news, I did hard news, but I also did theatre reviews. So I go to the Lyric Hammersmith a lot. Yeah. I'd see plays by, you know, revivals of Joe Wharton and Howard Brenton and, you know, all the good revivals. Mm. You because you do Richmond Theatre and Lyric Hammersmith and so I was doing a lot of theatre it's just a and the bush but it was just that this was the first real connection with the court are you uh, uh, Joe a writer who happens to write for theatre therefore or are you a theatre person who happens to be a writer which came first for you the kind of writing part of it or the theatre part of it I think writing came first because I, I wrote journalism as a teenager. Did you write anything else other than journalism? Did you write poetry or songs? Yeah, and I wrote... Like I mean, I started out when I was a kid writing sort of poetry. And yeah. Then I, then I drifted into songs because I was in bands for a long time. And mm. then I was a... As a teenager, I was a rock journalist. Right. And, um, you know, and I sold my pieces to Just rock the, magazines. The job I always wanted to made money. Have. You were raised in Australia, yeah? Well, yeah, yeah, in yeah. In, no, in uh, Sydney. In Sydney, right. And Adelaide, and a little bit in Melbourne. And, um, uh, yeah, I went to school over there, and art school, and also um, got by by selling rock journalism. So when I was sort of 17 or 18, I was hanging around with the damned and <laughs> madness and people like that, going on the road with them and writing these sort of gonzo... Gonzo yeah, stories. Great, it was great. It? it was. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still blast. have them? Do you still have the pieces that you wrote? Uh, I've got some of them. Yeah, I've yeah. got some of them. Unfortunately, I left my portfolio in a pub in Shepherd's Bush, and <laughs> and a lot Which of them. Which is sort of rock and roll in itself, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you that, vomited on it first, surely. And that fucked things for me because I couldn't get a job for years because no one believed me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's before the like the internet. Yeah, was so there's available. The, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There but was I've, a time I've got when you could really lose writing when actually you could actually lose writing and it would be gone forever. I, yeah. lost, I started writing poetry and lost a whole a plastic bag full of poems. Oh, it's gutting. Were you? But as we we talked earlier, which people will hear later in the brilliant <laughs> post-structural deconstruction of this podcast. <laughs> About your, uh, <laughs> this is all your lateness, Joe, has caused a it's, reinvention it's made, it's, of time. It's turned itself. it very German. It really yeah. has. The, uh, but you, that's you, the story you, of my life, man. I'm late. <laughs> I'm late to but, everything. But you, you I didn't s- write a play till I was 26. <laughs> Did you not? Well, Which, 25. Because Joe, because I was talking with Dennis, you, you, you started. Uh, Acting in a local theatre company, yeah. Barber. When did you start writing for your own entertainment, well, or with the aspiration that you might be a writer? Be a writer. Yeah. Well, the first one I did was again. It was it was more like um, it was partly because I wanted. I, I kind of figured if I wrote a play, someone would have to put me in it, right. which wasn't actually true because when we put it on, they still wouldn't put me in it. You know, <laughs> I, but they. But also, like, um, you know, I, I think like yeah, I felt like. The, the plays I was seeing weren't really... I, I was really loving it, but it wasn't really reflecting who I felt I was. Sure. And so that was what my aim was, was to write something that, you know... But actually, there were lots of there were lots of people doing that better than I, I could do at that time, you know. But I think once I wrote that play, I wanted to write. One, mm. it, it was the experience of writing it made me... I, I, I think I just like story, story, really. I like telling stories, and I, and I, I also like being able to sort of express yourself... Um, through these strange mediums, you know what I mean, and it's, it, I think as well, like with, with good, if 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 you're doing it right, 
in most plays you sort of put a secret in there somewhere you know what i mean you put you put something in that you probably don't really tell your mates or you don't tell your wife or you don't tell anyone else but you put it in a play for every, every other fucker to see, you know? And it, it doesn't have to be anything big or profound. It's just like, I think like this. Well, you this can't tell because they the never world. listen, so you have to put it in a play. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's the point of plays. That's right. It's, it's the arguments that no one will have with you or that you lose, so you just put them in a but play. But that's sort of true, though, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? That's, that's what well, you're doing. That's secret. exactly what you're doing. You're sort my of like... dark secret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did you... Um, uh, so how many plays did you write before Some Voices then, Joe? That was the first full-length play. Yeah, I wrote a short play called Wild Turkey, which was on at the Old Red Lion in their little festival. Their little you were play 25 festival. when you wrote that? Yeah, 25 when I did that. I was 26 when I did Some Voices. So between, um, when did you come back to the UK? Oh, that was when I was 21. So in those four or five years, you were working as a local reporter. Yeah. Wanting to be a, maybe a rock journalist, but not wanting to be... No, a, no, I was done with rock journalism. By the right. time I was 21, I thought, I'm over the hill. So what did you want to be at 21? <laughs> and returning to London, you returned to London, yeah? Yeah. Returning to London at 21, what was your, what did you want to do? Uh, I think I wanted to be a writer. I wanted right. to be a playwright. I mean, I'd got, I discovered Arthur Miller and Joe Wharton and Harold Pinter and all those people by then. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to do that. But I also knew, but I also knew that journalism was a good way of doing it. Of becoming a writer, yeah, you know, and and it was started to become apparent that I wasn't I was kind of no novelist, um, and then the and then the Royal Court were very proactive in and they still are very proactive in sort of um, grooming young people, making them into playwrights, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and 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 I, I failed to escape their clutches. They they sort of got hold of me and did this delightful thing that no one else anywhere else in the world would do, which is they sort of convinced me that I I could become a great playwright. And they sort of went and and, and offered to teach. Which they didn't do at art school, you know. That was before you before you uh, wrote Wild Turkey. That was what, yeah, and and well, Wild Turkey Wild... sort of came out of that. Yeah, and then the it's an interesting observation that an art school you need to apply and be rigorous and aspire to do it before they turn you an artist. But a play a theatre like the Royal Court is desperately finding people and convincing them they're playwrights. The thing that pissed me off about art school, which was that their 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 kind of ethos at the time, this art school was. Um, Where were you at art school? This was in Sydney, Sydney right. School of Art, which is a great art school. It's a great art. I school didn't realise you'd been to art school at all. I dropped out because I was um, I was incredibly frustrated because the, the 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 kind of ethos was you're a delicate flower. You know, you're a blank slate. You know, far be it for us to impose any discipline upon you. You know, just just go, be free, be wild, and create. And and I hated that. I wanted to just, um, I wanted to learn the fundamentals and apply some rigor to my wayward life. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the Royal Court actually said this, which was, you know, we can teach you as best we can. Mm. You know, which was, April, was April Angelus. Well, it was Hanif and April. Yeah, I mean, Hanif Koresh, Yeah, April's not given to 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 kind of dog dogmatic you know mm. proclamations but but yeah you know the the <clears throat> feeling was yeah we're not here for a haircut you know we're not messing about we mm. think we think we can teach you some things you know Stephen Jeffries was a, another early influence and mentor and you know just to teach you about structure teach you some some things yeah. they can't teach you everything and Dennis your 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 kind of exploration of playwriting as a, as you as you uh said earlier, which we'll hear later, as a means to get girls. I've lost all track of time myself now. <laughs> but um, as a, to do the acting because there were girls in this drama in this drama group in High Barnet, what made you carry on writing rather than 
Because you, you it wasn't no, just you, that there were girls. I no, I know, I know. There was definitely a part of that. I relate completely to as that. A, as a you know, a sixteen-year-old lad, you're just thinking. I, I that relate, sounds good. I think it's something that's still ongoing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as not a, a cast iron plan, is it? <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> not, <laughs> it's not foolproof. And, and I but, might as well say it never worked. Like I. But, the, but, my, but my two questions were: Did you not write in other forms as a teenager growing up? You weren't writing songs or, or journalism. Or, no, not really. I mean, I'd never really. Um, I remember writing a poet, a poem once. Yeah. And it was terrible, uh, and just some sort of you know, awful, pretentious stuff. And uh, I never, I never really wrote. Um, I remember going through a phase where where I sort of discovered books, uh, and I must have been about fourteen or fifteen, and and then thinking, oh, I really want to write, I, I want to write a book. But I think it was, I, I didn't. Who, really were, wanna... who were you reading? Who did you oh, it was just about? like you know. I think the first book I ever. <laughs> this is going to sound really stupid. The first book I ever read was The Lord of the Rings. The first book I ever read outside of school, like yeah. you know. And I just read it in about three weeks, the whole thing. And like, doesn't so, sound that stupid. Doesn't Disappointingly, it? not that stupid. Oh right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just because it's long, isn't it? It's yeah, like yeah, as, yeah. As, a, as a sort of first go at something, it's yeah. fucking long. Yeah. But uh, I thought it was amazing, and you know, I liked the bit throwing myself into a world and stuff like that. But I didn't have a sort of a. It didn't occur to me that I would be writing plays. It, that didn't. That wasn't sort of. Um, that wasn't something I sort of thought I could. I would do until I did it. You know and. Um, I mean, my my experience of the royal court is the opposite of Joe's. Like I, I, I like the Joe's is like they groomed him. I, I kind of hung around in revealing tops, <laughs> trying to get groomed. I was there thinking, "Fucking groom me, you bastard!" For many, many years, you know, I was I would I like when I first started out writing. It was a it was a it was a real ache for me that like I felt like a child pressed with my nose up against the glass, going, "Please let me in." And in the end, I sort of thought, "Oh well, you know, this this isn't going to happen, and I can do plays in other places." and you know but it's, it's just because it's such an amazing place isn't it you want like if you if you care about writing you do want to have a play on at the Royal Court you know one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to be able to talk to brilliant playwrights uh, so that people starting off their careers writing might get an insight into how yeah you know what happens in those years before you start I think as I said earlier um, it's a very gendered thing for male playwrights to be given a little bit more time at the start of their career. Mm. Quite often women playwrights, uh, early plays are over-celebrated. They're put on a pinnacle, uh, on a pedestal, which is which is quite exposing for them, and then they're kind of like deer in headlights, they don't know what to do next. Not all women playwrights, but it's happened several times in the past 20 years. But you guys started in your late 20s, early 30s. You were doing other jobs. We, you were writing... Some Voices was an early hit. Yeah, very early hit. My first thing I did. What was your memory of writing that? Why did you write it? Um, well, I had a lot of things to get off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good many years of things that I'd been saving up. Mm. And um, it was partly that. And it was partly because, you know, just to get things off my chest. Mm. Um, so it was written as a uh, to express rather than to reach an audience. You're... Yeah, it was written to express myself. But the thing was, I was aware that theatre at the time and 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 now as well, I think in essence was kind of annoyingly socially reformist, and that there was a gender an agenda at the Royal Court in the late eighties and the early nineties, which was kind of which was kind of um, tenaciously. Um, socially reformist and and we were endlessly inculcated in the difference between a private play which was something you do in private right. and a 
public place, which is something that's, <laughs> that we can all share it. Yeah. And, um, and I was aware that what I was getting up to was very private and it was therefore no use to them. And, um, and, then, and then I had the idea for some voices and I knew perfectly well as a journalist that this care in the community ship was what everyone was talking about and was, was, was a kind of a hot potato and, you know, for want of a better word, topical. And I, you know, I, even at that young age, 26, I kind of cynically went, hmm, this will get them going, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take this to the Royal Court. Did you have that gravelly growl as well? When you, when you did yeah, smoking at the time. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it proved to be true. You know, that was the one that, you know, was exciting to them. Wild Turkey was about uh, people. It was about. I used to. One of the other many, many jobs that I had was I, running a pizza I ran a pizza bar with yeah. a friend of mine. And it was, you know, in the end, it was sort of. It became like a Spike Lee movie and was smashed up and kind of invaded by kind of mobsters. And it was a scary place to be. And I wrote a play about it, which was a little short play. And, and the Royal Court wouldn't do it. Yeah. And I remember well somebody who shall remain nameless saying to me, um, well, you see, if it was set in Eastern Europe, you know, during a time of revolution... <laughs> He's doing an impression here, by the way, and I, <laughs> I will tell you after who it is. <laughs> a burger bar play about uh, the revolution, um, then it would be so much more relevant. And I just thought, you fucking idiot. <laughs> but that time, in the night, if we can talk about that... Sort of that go on, sorry. That's no, sorry exactly that that the is the sort of thing you would be told, isn't it? Like, yeah, that's the reason why you didn't get in. And, and, and I was, you know, you know, I was kind of sneakier. <laughs> and I kind of, hmm. So I put a burger bar into some... I put a pizza bar into some voices. See, I smuggled the pizza bar in, and it wasn't kind of a, a, a post-revolutionary pizza bar. It was just a pizza bar in sort of Shepherd's Bush. But, well, that, that but you had the care in the community thing going on. So. But that was quite a conscious thing then, like that sort of like anti-social reformist kind of like getting rid of the past. The gesture of the eighties, nineties play uh, that the, the, the job of a play can be to change something. Quite I was never interested politically. in that, and I'm still not interested in yeah. that. You know, I just it just doesn't get through my my skull that that's a worthwhile enterprise. Because when I was starting out, that, that sort of thinking was really like I, I was really inspired by that sort of thinking and by those kind of those sort of like. I was jaded already. <laughs> so you were but inspired like, by the political playwrights? No, no, the, the opposite. I was inspired by the the sort of rejection of not not that I don't Great, think very the, good. not yes. that I don't think theatre is political, but yeah. I, th I think um, being kind of. Uh, it's always it's always it always feels wrong to 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 sort of um, you know find, you've got to be careful of finding the issue yep. and exploring the issue and you know I, I thought what was exciting about a lot of the stuff that was going on in in the nineties was yes. that it was it, it was sort of truthful and it was about changing things in a different way I think you know it was about sort of expressing something that um, mattered but when by the time I started writing in the early two thousands I think it, I'd felt it had gone back. We've gone backwards in some ways. Yeah, and we did. We did. Uh, we did go, and I, th I thought I, I remember consciously in what thinking, way? "Well, I th I thought we'd gone." Uh, so I I started writing shortly after nine eleven, really, and yeah. I felt that it, it, we weren't um, we we had become political in a very sort of um, sort of you know worthy way. We were virtue signalling. Yeah, it was kind of like um, you know uh, there was a lot of council estate type drama, like the, you know these mm. you know and. And I, I felt very kind of frustrated by a lot of that, and I sort of felt like we needed to... We, we had abandoned the sort of stuff of the 90s, which was about sort of think, creating things that are exciting and interesting. Well, and bold. It was existentialism, you know, in the 90s. Yes. The thing about the weir or, you know, or some voices or, or the penetrator, they were, they were existentialists. Well, Sarah's plays as well, I think, Sarah Kane's yeah. plays. Yeah, you know, psychosis, cleansed, um, and, and 
definitely blasted. They were they were the existentialists' worldview. Yes. So they had things like war, in in, yeah. in Kosovo or or whatever the hell was going on. But uh, but they were they were filtered through the prism of 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 this person's very personal kind of point of view. And but so also it wasn't like it wasn't that I thought we should go back to that. I thought what we needed to do was I thought what had happened is we'd sort of abandoned that and gone to a very sort of small political kind mm. of. I thought we did have we did have to be political, but we had to we had to actually had to write about what the fuck really mattered. You know, we just had, you know, we were going to war. The twin towers had just been knocked over, mm. and like, you know, no, we kind of weren't really looking at that sort of stuff. So I felt like what I sort of consciously felt like I was interested in was sort of looking at the new realities and somehow trying to write about those things, but you know, kind of learning the, the lessons of the nineties. You know what I mean? And whereas I thought we'd just done an about turn and just gone and looked at very small stuff. You know. It's, so, very small and cosy. Well, it became very reductive. Are, are both, both of you, interestingly, are therefore writing out of some kind of spirit of opposition to what you feel to be the main kind of timbre of your time. In the 90s, Joe, you're writing against the writers from the early 90s and late 80s who were politically, or as you say, kind of socially corrective, and yeah. you're writing against... Uh, and yeah, we're just twats, really. We're just like we're no, just but it's not about being twats, is it? It's about <laughs> it's argumentative. It's just bullshit. It's about, but there's a spirit of no, dissidence, which that's is important, important, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think most right uh, a lot of writers. That's where it comes from. I mean, yeah. I, I, like it, I feel like you know, um, you have to be careful about. Uh, uh, you know, I think you can help. You can help writers to understand things, and you can teach young writers and everything else. But we've got a great tradition in this country of like. Right, young writers coming along and teaching us. Young writers coming along and saying, mm. "Fuck you, you've got it wrong." And mm. it's a really, it's a good thing to celebrate, I think, in this country. You know, I'm really fascinated by if I can uh, talk about your process, and I don't know if there's a relationship between process and that gesture of dissidence, but uh, and maybe we can talk about the writing of some voices, or there might you might want to talk about another play, or or about debris, or Osama the hero. What do you remember about writing? Uh, some voices. Do you remember how you wrote it? Yeah, I, vividly. I wrote it. Well, I was working at the newspaper, so I'd get home at six, mm. and I'd work and I'd write till midnight or one in the morning. I mean, I don't know how I had the energy, mm -hmm. and it drove my girlfriend crazy <laughs> because I never spent any time with her, and um, I never had any money. Um, and I, yeah, I would just chain myself to the desk and belt it out, and um, and I did three drastically different drafts. One was very, very spare and kind of, it was like Wojciech, you know, mm. and it was impressionistic. And what, then, then I did this second version that was very, very overwritten. It was like Sam Shepard, very <laughs> lyrical and lots of rambling monologues. Yeah. And then I was advised by a, a kind of mentor to give it a haircut. So I, <laughs> I sort of did a version that was halfway between the two, that, was, that, that had all, all the detail but was and all the characters and all the story, but was more sparely written, and that was the one that nailed it. Were you writing, were you planning? Did you plan before you wrote anything, or were you discovering the play as you wrote it? I didn't plan it, no. I discovered it as I write it, and I always discover it as I write it. And, 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 and it's kind of like leaving the scene, so you leave the scene at midnight one night, go to work as a reporter, come back home, and you open the document up again at where you'd left it the previous night, or... What, what did you do? Did you just carry on going and then read the whole thing? Do you remember about 
the order of writing, if you've not planned, how do you know what your next line is going to be? Do you remember those questions? I think there was a little bit of reading back over what I'd done, mm -hmm. thinking, wow, that's great. <laughs> how did I do that? I should do this more often. Yeah. That's what kept me going. Um, but, I, you, know, I, you know, those, those early plays I just wrote at a real lick, you know, and yeah. really fast. How long, when you say lick, how fast did it take you to write some voices or Pearl Horse or Love and Understanding? Oh, those took a good... A good a good few months for a draft, mm. a couple of months for a draft, and then over the course of a year, you know, a good few drafts. I mean, it's, it's kind of always like that. Mm. Um, but, I mean, to me, that's quite fast. Right. Given, given that I discard a lot of stuff. <clears throat> yeah. In fact, I discard whole plays, you know. And, and the other thing about some voices, and this is something that I, I often do, is that some voices was kind of a Frankenstein's monster of there's quite a few things lying around, like there's a short story lying around that became a scene. And there was a few ideas and a few bits and pieces that were lying around that I ended up co-opting. There were just things, preoccupations that had found, that had been expressed in another form, but I realised that they were preoccupations and I needed to kind of rope them in. And I still do that. I mean, mm. Blue, Blue Orange is like that. Blue Orange, the middle section of Blue Orange actually started out as another play. And um, in which, when you say the middle section, you mean which bit? The which bit was the? And what was the other play? The bit where <laughs> the Christopher is asking to be rehoused. Yeah, the great. mental patient is asking to be rehoused. Yeah, was started out as another play about a guy who wanted to be rehoused. <laughs> yeah, and then his yeah. life sort of spiraled out of control. Yeah, as a result of this frustration, and and uh, for some reason I realised that it would be fantastic in 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 Blue Orange. I, d I do that occasionally. You've got to be very careful of doing that because you can you can end up with something that's that's all bolted together and looks like a Frankenstein's monster. Sure. But at the same time, what, what I like to do in a play is have not, not one big idea, but two big ideas. When you've got two big ideas colliding, then that's generally a play. What does that mean? What? Well, what kind of, what is that? well, for example, with some voices, you know, that, on the one hand, that was, a, that, that was um, an episodic, um, epic journey of somebody getting out of a mental hospital before they're ready. Yeah. You know, simple. Great. Uh, and, and all the different agencies and stations that they attend, in, you know, in their in their inevitable spiral downwards. Mm. But on the other hand, it was a play about brothers, and it was a play about me and my brother, yeah. and it was a play about me and, and a very close friend of mine who was schizophrenic, and, and him and his brother. Uh, so, mm. and there were there were both things that I really wanted to write, and um, you know, with with Blue Orange, you know, I really wanted to write about power and and um, dogma. And the dogma of the sort of overweeningly political correct in in academia and institutions, mm. um, and um, but I also wanted to write about cultural specificity, yes, um, as it relates to ethnicity <laughs> and ethnocentricity and national national identity. Those are two distinct ideas that, when you put them together. There's a there's a massive explosion, and anyway. ideas that you're conscious of before writing as well. So if your writing process is you just explore the play as you're writing it, the ideas you've explored before writing, yeah, it's a conscious thing. But I'm gonna I'm gonna rub that idea against that idea, or you're just writing and then you realise in the process of writing, oh hey, I happen to be bouncing this idea against this idea. I sort of have a load of ideas for for scenes and storylines to do with one idea. Yeah, and then I and then I start. And then I start thinking of another preoccupation and another idea. Yeah. So then I, you know, I quite deliberately and meticulously start to um, put together scenes in the service of that idea, and 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 pretty soon 
you know, they, they mate. <laughs> and, they, and they become the one player, you know. What about, De- do you remember writing Debris? Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I had a really similar experience with Debris, which is that like I, re- I, I basically cobbled, I written a monologue and then I wrote another monologue and I thought oh, the, maybe these monologues sort of work together, so I wrote another one, and that seemed to work. And then I stuck some bits in the middle, and then, but I went through loads of drafts, and there was one one draft where I um, wrote the whole thing as a fourth wall realistic play, like which it just didn't work as at all, you mm. know. And then I ended up with something that was in the middle of the two of those things, where I sort of pulled pulled out some bits and. You know, so it sounds, sounds it's a similar sort of experience, but like I, I've also like I always think you've got like three piles as a writer. You've got your good pile, your rubbish pile, and you've got your spare parts pile. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like sometimes I will co-opt. Uh, I've, there's things that I've found in plays that that I've sort of thought, fuck me, that works. Suddenly, I think that it might be something to do with an idea not being fully formed at a certain moment, but then sort of mattering to you and then sort of finds its way into a play and sort of expresses it that way you know but I've also mm. like I've, I've I've it's always been it's been different in, at different times and I've had plays where I've just known exactly what it was I wanted to do and I sit down and I write that and yep. you know or, or I've had plays where are you a planner do you plan in that sense uh, I've I have planned I don't um, I don't always plan like yep. I've written plays like when I wrote Orphans I, I had nothing other than the opening image and I, I just had the opening image and three people who I didn't really know who they were, you know. Mm. And so I sort of the, the journey of the play was finding that out. But I also had a bunch of stuff that I was interested in, like in, in exploring. And like this, uh, the, the, for me, there's usually a question in myself that that I'm asking myself or that I don't understand or that I'm a bit confused by. I mean, for me, it, like if it's if an, an issue is more, I suppose an issue is more interesting if I don't know if I don't have a, an a easy answer for it. If I've got an easy answer for it, I, I don't know I don't know if I can be bothered to write a play about it because, you know, it's all wrapped up, you know what I mean? The, the things we have easy answers for are the things we should be writing essays about, not necessarily Yeah, plays. yeah, or, or even articles. I mean, journalism yeah. is fantastic. You know, yeah. journalism is, is really great, you know, and it's great to read a paper and it's great to... And, and um, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, you, can't, um, you can't write a political play or, or a journalistic play I mean I remember, I saw um, I remember last year seeing Lampedusa and thinking it was beautiful mm-hmm. you know and I thought what he did there was uh, perfect um, you know it was a really great way of um, writing about a current issue because he wrote it through the people you know yes. and he sort of helped me understand something that I'm not getting from the paper you know yes. something more human you know what I mean yeah the um, what, and, and, and I'm interested as well in in and the process and the way Joe talks about getting home from work at six o'clock, and then he's just writing yeah. through the night and discovering with with a play like Debris or with other yeah, plays. Yeah, I, I was a morning writer, really. Were you? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm generally what, a morning writer. What times your morning start? Well, that's the problem, you see, because I'm a morning writer, but I'm a late person. I don't like to go to bed <laughs> before two o'clock. And even when I lived at the time, when I was writing, even when I lived on my own, I, I didn't like to go to bed. I think I'm going to miss something, so I don't like to go to bed. Before, um, you know what am I going to fucking miss on my own? But like, you know, like, but so I would get I get up late, but I, I don't normally get up till about nine or something like that. But right. then I, I I do tend to write better in the morning. But that was in those days. Now I sort of write whenever I need to. And and when you were writing Debris, were you doing a job? Were you do? Were you yeah, working? I was uh, working in uh, Bella Italia, I think, as a waiter, and I was working in a really shitty gallery in North London. Uh, so you share the food service industry as well. Oh, yeah, I've done a bit of that. I was in, in returning to Joe's place. <laughs> I couldn't make, I, did, I didn't, couldn't cut it as a waiter. I always had to go behind the scenes. I was Waitering is fucking watching, hard. Yeah, man, it's you know? hard. You've it's got to have really fun. hard. It's like being a lead singer. 
you gotta you gotta like attention. You know, you get all this attention that you don't want. I was always in the in the back room watching the pots. I I, remember, <laughs> I enjoyed being a barman because I always thought when I was starting. Being a waiter, by the way, is nothing like being a lead singer. I just gotta say that. <laughs> I just gotta well, say. It where you there's something about what depends what, on the band, I suppose. There's isn't something it? about being the only sober person in a room full of drunks as a barman that's quite useful for a writer because you oh, get right. to yeah. you, you, yeah. you're kind yeah. of observing the world deteriorate without yeah. it, without it noticing. What about so? Um, uh, I'm I'm. Do love asking writers about their writing day. So when I rang you to say where the hell were you, Joe? You uh, because you were you were late for the podcast, but I could tell from the phone call that you were in the middle of writing. You had the energy of somebody in the zone. What the is zone. what What have you been doing today? What's your writing day today? I tell you what, it's a really interesting story, and it's gonna, it's never going to be heard again because it'll probably die without a trace. But I went to Hackney Town Hall the other night to see um, Roy's play, uh, Roy Williams's play, Soul about mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye, which is a wonderful Aye. play, yep. and. Um, and Hackney, T- I just walked up to ta- Hackney Town Hall, which I'd never seen before. And the architecture of it and the big palm tree out the front, it, 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 it kind of created little ripples in my consciousness, in my subconscious. Because I'd seen similar architecture like that in, in, in Africa and Uganda, and I'd seen it in uh, Melbourne, and I'd seen it in the south of France. And it, it, it just became this wonderful kind of symbol. It didn't seem like Hackney at all. And I thought, that's the town hall. And and I and 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 there was all you know. Ev- everybody knows you know Hackney is this big melting pot and, and all the rest of it. Um, but but um, but the the town hall was this kind of very vivid, fresh, beautiful vision that 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 kind of sold me the idea in a much better way. Mm. Um, and and so I've been thinking about that. So I started writing something, and uh, this morning about a um, new starting a new play this morning. I just started fiddling about with stuff. A lot of ideas that I've had hanging around for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, I do this every now and again. I start something and then I think it's not really much good and I just... And then Simon Stevens finds up and interrupts and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's lost forever. Were you, right, were you writing dialogue? Yeah, I was writing the whole thing. I mean, what I, what I do is, this is ridiculous, but I get a great idea, what I think is a great idea. And and I have to have it while it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's like the foreplay lasts for about 14 hours. <laughs> And then at the end of it, I'm like, yes, yes, I'm there, baby. And, and I start writing like crazy. And then after about another couple of days, I think, what the fuck am I doing? What is this shit? And I stop. Because the notion of discarding plays is unthinkable to me. I don't know about you, Dennis, but the idea that you would write a play, and you've done this at least once, maybe more than once, where you've written whole plays and then ditched them. I've got about five in the drawer. Yeah, I'm yeah, really, I'm really, I'm really fussy. I've done a few, yeah. Not, I'm not, I don't, probably not as fussy as you, but I, like, I, I have done a few where I've like, I've just written them and, like I, I had a, a even one, a, even plays under commission that I've sort of not delivered and uh, about a year ago, I, in the end, I, I gave them the money back. They didn't want the money back, but I had to because I felt so guilty about not. And mm. I'd written this entire fucking play, and like you know, um, just I just couldn't. I, I had this guilt that uh, this constant guilt that I couldn't hand over this play. But the play was wrong. The play was bad, and yeah. you know. You should have fucking taken the money, man. I know. <laughs> you should have charged them double. For the I privilege. should have charged them. T- what, what a fucking idiot! No, but you know what it was. It was. A, it was a weird sort of like. Uh, no, it was. It was because I knew it. For, like what they were saying was like, okay, well, don't do that. Do another one. And I, what I needed to do was not have the commission in a way because, like, I, I had too much other stuff on. But you're so um, just to get to the bottom of your working day, you've got kids. Yeah, you've got have, two yeah. kids. Yeah. So you get up with them. 
take them to school? What's your shape of your day? Well, you see, I used to... Once I became a full-time writer, and I could just write whenever I want, if I had to, yeah. to earn a living, I used to get up in the morning and sit down, usually in my pyjamas, and yeah. write, because that's when all the great ideas came. Mm-hmm. And I'd do it until I was done, which would be sort of sometime in the late afternoon. Um, but now... You know, and then I went through a very professional phase where I get up and I start at nine with a pot of coffee, mm. um, and now I the kids get me up before seven, and you know it's all about doing their eggs and stuff like mm-hmm. that, and then getting yep. them off to school, and then and then I can do some writing. Um, where do you write? I've got a little office, which is kind of a horrible little porter cabin, but y- y- I, I never know whether to have a beautiful office or a shitty office, and I've always kind of I've had beautiful office is good, I think. The yeah. shitty office. Why? I don't know. I think like uh, I, I remember when I, when we did Matilda going to see the Dull Hut, and when you go and see his hut that Raoul Dahl wrote in, it made it made perfect sense to me because it is really shitty and it's like got it's, it's nicotine stains on the seal. Beautiful gardens, really beautiful house, really beautiful gardens. He's in this tiny little fucking ugly shed with the blind drawn, but it made perfect sense to me because like you you what you want you want your imagination to go. You know, I mean, you don't if you have beautiful. I mean, do you want? You know, the, the the stuff should be going on in your mind, not outside, you know, and that's you're, what I thought. You're, you're yeah, co- I don't know. Um, what about you, Dennis? How do you kick your day off? I, I, I just get up, coffee, then then just go upstairs, and I've got a little office upstairs, and kind of spend a, 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 about an hour trying not to look at emails and trying not to look on the internet. Another hour I spend hating myself, and eventually write, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, I used to, in my 20s, I'd, I'd, write, I'd write plays heavily affected by drugs and alcohol. Right, <laughs> and 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 then and then I and then I realised that actually you don't get anywhere. You you know it's actually it's quite good. You can have the old good idea, yeah. but you can't finish it as well as if you actually um uh, you know, have a pot of coffee and like. Because there's some mechanical stain. stuff you've got to do as well. That you it's need very mechanical, cord, isn't yeah. there? There's a lot of stuff that you need to. You got to be you, on the you ball. Need, you also need to be able to like what you what you describe about sort of looking at something in two or three days' time and going oh fuck. You know, that's really important because you, you've got to, before you give anything to anyone else, you have to filter it yourself. And you've got, everyone's got the permission to write shit. You're allowed to write shit. We're all allowed to write shit. But what we hope we do, we do is the sh- we hope the shit doesn't get to the stage. We hope we filter it out. Yeah. And if we can't filter it out, we're hoping other people will filter it out. And um, But we, ultimately, it's down to us, isn't it, to sort of look at that and go, that's not working, you know. What do it's you a write, kind of dance between spontaneity and keyhole surgery, you know. You, you you kind of need the meticulousness of a surgeon, but you also need to have spontaneity. You do need to be able to sort of lurch about and sort of throw your clothes off every now and again. As experienced writers, as has been writing for kind of ten fifteen years, much longer in your case, Joe. <laughs> in the womb, I was but, writing um, in the womb. But, I wrote an but, Edward Bond play <laughs> in the but, womb. But, are you, but I love this notion of the dance between keyhole surgery and uh, and and and, and striptease. Yeah. Are you conscious of that? Do you kind of train the surgeon in you? Are there parts of your writing which are brilliant? You know that you're doing the keyhole surgery. Do you have days where you know you're going to be doing the surgery or de- and days when you know you're going to be doing the jazz riff? Either of you. Yeah, yeah, I'm, and I'm good at rewrites. You know, that's the surgery part. That's the keyhole surgery part. That's, a, that's, a, that's the part about being incredibly precise about what it is you've written, how you can calibrate it and adjust it. It's becoming my favourite bit of writing now, I think. Yeah, it's, it's the fun it's bit. It's matters, isn't it? It's yeah. the fun bit. Yeah, yeah. The hard you, bit you, re, 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 and it's the th- You've got to learn rewriting, I think. Yeah. It's sort of like, that's the thing that's the hardest thing to get hold of, is rewriting. Why do you think that is? Because it's... it's um, well, Hemingway swore by it, didn't he? He said that's Yeah, what, the first draft of anything is shit, I think. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all about rewriting. Like, yeah. it is... Because I think you've got to learn it, because it's not a natural thing to do. It's such a mountain 
when you first start, actually getting a, something down on paper is a mountain. You've climbed it and you feel like you've got there. And then some other prick comes along and goes, no, there's another mountain to go. You know, you've got to do it all over again. But also, you, you, there's, um, it, it feels so you know the unentanglable. The trick to deal with that is, is to be decide yourself when, when it needs a rewrite and what needs to be yeah. done. As opposed to, as opposed to... Bef before someone else tells before you. Before someone else yeah, comes yeah. along and tells you. Because, number one, they're usually slightly, but, slightly, uh, slightly wrong. Yep. Slightly yeah. unfocused, and number two, just just psychologically, if somebody tells you that you've got to rewrite it, it's a downer yeah. from the start, you know. So so it's but much... it's hard to learn your that 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 you're absolutely right. That is the trick is is sort of being able to see when something needs it, and being a, and and also like because sometimes you don't see it. You, like I've just done a rewrite of something, and it's not been a very it's it started out as a good rewrite, and then sort of felt wrong, and then like I'm. Like I left it for a while, and that was a good thing to do because I've been able to go back and have a look and think, shit, I didn't get that right. I needed a new idea, which yeah. I also needed to add time to the equation. Mm. I needed to give my brain time to have the new idea. And and now that I've now uh, not even a new idea, it's about understanding what the hell it is I'm writing about because sometimes you don't. How um, important both of you, as I said in uh, you know the introduction, are fantastically successful screenwriters. How has that affected your writing for stage? Has it at all, or in what way? Um, well, kind of economically, it affected it because I didn't have to crank out a play a year, right. you know, and that was a big relief. How many plays do you write? How often do you write a play? I write a play now every few years, right. when I because I I think I probably only have a really great idea every few years, mm. you know. But in the nineties, you know, I did sort of a play a year, mm. and it was it was. You know, because you had to just pay the rent. Yeah. And um, very often things went on a bit half-baked. But, um, well, i tell you what happens. I mean, it's very complicated. The thing about screenplays is that it needs to be... Uh, it needs to be unambiguous. No matter what people tell you, the ambiguity is in the acting and the directing mm. and the music and the all the different sort of tools that you have in film, yeah. the edit, etc., but the director wants it usually pretty unambiguous and, and straightforward. They don't want to fart around with subtext because they'll be putting that in. Yeah, and I've right. and yeah, exactly. And I've had you know a lot of experiences in film where where they the director they simp the producers and the directors simply don't understand what the fuck is going on in the scene, because as a theatre writer, the job is to write it like an airbag that expands on impact, and and resonates in all sorts of different ways, and means all sorts of different things, and, and fills the theatre. But if you do that with a film script, it'll just baffle. People. Also, there's a when thing about rehearsals right, as well. Like, sorry, sorry. but like, uh, what, you know, you, you, I remember the first time I did uh, uh, something for, uh, it was pulling, I think, and I remember the rehearsal, the director coming in and saying, "Great news, we've got, an, we've got like three afternoons of rehearsal," and I was thinking, "What, what the fuck are we going to do with that?" Because you're used to like doing plays where you got four weeks, six weeks, and so you, 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 you want you, you can create something sort of ambiguous in a, in a. Um, play because it's going to be explored it's going to be found it's going to be you're going to tease it out but just to be clear about creating ambiguity that's things like in comparison to the screenwriting form not having stage directions leaving space not explaining everything allowing space for actors directors to discover whereas a screenplay you would describe much more is that what well, you mean well yeah i mean uh, yeah there's that which Definitely, is which is, which is formally you know you yeah. have to yeah. describe everything for them but but what we're talking about is the ambiguity of the dialogue you know yeah. you know that you i i for one sort of spent many many years uh, learning to write ambiguously learning to write in a, in a way that kind of exploded on impact and meant different things and and didn't 
didn't mean what it seemed to mean. And it and it made it difficult for me to get plays on because people would read it and go, well, I don't understand it. It's, it's not even funny. And then then I'd do a reading and it would expand and it would fill the room and everyone would go, oh, no, I get it. Yeah, it makes it richer. Yeah, it, it, it's richer. And I always had to do with almost every single play mm. to sort of prove it was worth. I had to sort of do a reading. With screenwriting, what I've learned is that that kind of ambiguity, that kind of expansion, just confuses them, flips them out, vaguely pisses them off because they want to be the the arbitrator of of, of all meaning. Yeah. But also, it's only going to be said once. Like it's going to be said much less. Like so, if you write a line that has possible multiple meanings, you're going to re- explore it in rehearsal, and you, the play may go on somewhere else. All this sort of thing. That's never going to happen in a in a film. Like, and it, mm. an actor's going to look at it, and if it's a star actor, they may look at it and go, "I don't want to say that. I'm going to say this." So it's a totally different sort of form. You know, it's a very different, you know, it's a, a really different kind of way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, and if and if an A-list star actor says, "I I don't want to say that. I want to say this," and, and you go, "Well, that, yeah, but that's not what I wrote." Uh, then <laughs> you get rid of you before the you actor. lose. Yeah, you lose because and uh, you know unless I'm much mistaken, I don't have 14 million fans and, <laughs> and I don't and, yeah. I, and I don't earn 20 million quid a year for my agents. You know, so um, so you you lose your bottom of the pecking order. You know, but there yeah. is something else as well. Like I mean, I found like what I, I was really when I first started doing something for TV, I was really I. I I really wanted to do it because it was pulling and it, it felt like I was exploring a part of myself. Me and Sharon were exploring parts of our life that I didn't think I wanted to explore on stage anyway. You know, I really wanted to do it, but there was a, I had a residual worry that what would happen is my um, my uh, theatre writing might be affected and become more sort of screeny, and which I'd seen. I'd seen plays. Uh, there were a lot of plays around at the time that looked like televisual plays. Yeah, I hated right. them. It just but actually distilled down to story. Yeah, and but it kind of didn't. It didn't do that actually. I, I found the opposite happened. I think mm. I sort of oddly became a bit more. I wrote uh, a play called Taking Care of Baby, which I think is possibly the most more thea- one of the more theatrical plays I've written. It's you a f- know. the fake verbatim play. It's a fake verbatim play. Really it's oddly theatrical. Yeah. yeah, and, and uh, so it doesn't have to sort of impact it negatively. Yes. But you've got to remember you've got two different jobs and two different people. You know, you're not, you, you can't always, what, what I think is a mistake is bringing the lessons you learn on how to be a screenwriter into theatre because it's a different fucking job altogether. You but know? rather than freeing, freeing the playwright, because you're doing things as a screen as a screenplay, yeah. It's also a mistake to if you love film and you and you and you're inspired by film to try and replicate it on stage. Yeah. Because because you, it's just never going to work. You, yeah. what, one thing about writing film and successfully writing film is kind of liberates you because you can do you can do that on film and then when you when you go back to the stage you can do something that's pure stage that could only be yeah. a play. Who do you write for? Uh, in terms of audience, yeah, or the gesture of writing. Do you think about the audience? Do you, are you writing for yourself? Are you st- you talked earlier about self-expression. I sort of write for my community, really, my friends and everyone who's around. Yeah, you know, it's a bit like having a little party, and then it's a bit like having your own little private party and hoping that everyone there has a good time. You That's know, it's a way of keeping each other company and having a dialogue. I don't, I'm not particularly interested in expressing myself. I, I've got a wife and kids. I can express myself to them. You know, I don't need an audience to. Yeah, do they that. don't listen. They do that. They don't yeah, listen, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. I, that doesn't. I don't have hang-ups about that anymore. <laughs> I did when I was younger. Do you write uh, with any political intention now? Has that changed as you've got older? As becoming a parent, maybe politicised you or? I, yeah, you know, I've always been politically um, very engaged, but having been a news journalist. 
and being surrounded by really clever, savvy, kind of hard news people, I've always felt a bit silly trying to do it in the theatre and trying to yeah. change things with a play. Who did you write for, Dennis? Well, I, I, I sort of... Um, I thought Joe's answer was good and I wanted to give that one. I didn't you want to give that one. I want to give that one. Could you edit that into my answer? <laughs> it's a sort of Dennis <laughs> Kelly answer, <laughs> isn't it? It's much better than mine. I was channeling Dennis there. <laughs> do you write for... Do you ever think about posterity? Posterity? Yeah. No, I don't think about posterity. But I do... I, I, don't, I don't think about, like, you know... I just don't think like that, I think. But I, I think... What I try not to, I don't like. There was a thing that used to go around where people used to say a, a play is a blueprint for a production, and I hate that because I think a play needs to be larger than that. I think you need to be writing for something. I, I, I think I write for the play. I, I think I write the the story that you're writing is. Um, I, I think it's the play that I care about, and it, I care about making that play as good as it can be. And mm. I, I mean, I would like it if people would like the play, you know. But I think that's sort of. I tend to think things like that are a little bit out of my control. Who are the collaborators you, you've learned most from? Are they directors or actors or other writers or who else? Well, you don't tend to collaborate with other writers, it's so, so it's not that But you've often. collaborated with Tim Minchin. Minchin. Tim Minchin, yeah. Minchin, well, I didn't learn sorry. anything from him because he's a scumbag. No, I learned a lot from Tim. <laughs> and I Sharon Morgan as well. And you've Sharon, written so yeah, much yeah. of Sharon. No, I've written... You've I've written with loads of other yeah. writers, Dennis. You've just forgotten about No, I'm it. thinking about plays, though. Plays, yeah, okay. I haven't written... I le I've, I've learned a lot from uh, Matthew Warchus, actually. I learned a hell of a lot from Matthew Warchus. Who directed Matilda. Directed Matilda. And Roxana Silbert, who directed yeah. um, Orphans and... Uh, what kind of things did you learn from them? Uh, well, from Matthew, I learned to I learned to sort of um, Matthew's very good at sort of um, separating himself. He's incredibly egoless, and I think I learned something there. That mm. if, you, if you can separate yourself from and your ego from the, the material, it's very difficult to do, and you can't. I don't think I can do it perfectly. But the more you can do that, the more you've got a chance of actually seeing what it is that you've got. And what, all I want to be able to do is to be able to see what it is. It's very hard to do that through my own eyes. You know what I mean? So I kind of learned that from. The, the question I was asking you, and uh, which people listening to this will hear in a bit, but I was asking you an hour ago. Yeah. We were talking about the, the effect of theatre. Yeah. And the way in which, like good teaching, because good teaching doesn't necessarily instruct us so much as it gets us to think. Yeah. And you were talking about how important that was to you. Well, I, yeah, I think I was saying that, like in in uh, in education, because I've gone back and done a degree late. Even though the things that I'm not going to, even though the things I did there, I'll never fucking use. They are they sort of changed my thinking, and and there's a sort of a, you know, we have a very practical idea of education. It, it's useful for doing this, mm. but the education and culture in general ha are beneficial in their own right. Like people going to see plays is generally quite a good thing, not just because they like it, but because we are talking to each other about different things, you know. And that is a real, I think that is a really healthy thing. I mean, theatre for me, theatre was was there for me, you know. Theatre was even. I know I'm I'm a playwright now, which is an odd job, but even if I ain't become a playwright, I I feel like I would owe a hell of a lot to theatre because it kept a part of me alive when I was doing those jobs that I hated and. You know, it, it it was it allowed me to. I remember that in that crappy youth theatre. Not it wasn't crappy. It was fine. But it, I was sixteen years old, yeah. and like I remember coming into contact with the works of Pinter, and just I didn't understand it, but I thought this is fucking good. This is really. I knew it. I could feel it. You know what I mean? And um, I just think I think it gives. It can give you something. You know. And um, uh, your collaborators, Joe, or collaborators you've worked with that, that have made you think in different ways, or or maybe there haven't been any. 
Maybe I made them think in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's the best. You've got to give that yeah, answer. Even if nice, you don't believe it, you just that's a nice thought. I, Even yeah. if that's not well, true, you've got I, to give that I as an answer. I think I had a profound effect on all of them, really. <laughs> you know, I think... Uh, changed them for the better, <laughs> anyways. Yeah. A few didn't survive. A few, <laughs> there were a few that died along yeah, the way. I think what I was getting at in the 90s, really, is something that very few people ever really understood. <laughs> but I... <laughs> um... I collaborators. I mean, look, I I like I love working with directors. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if they love working with me, but are you good in rehearsal? Uh, am I good in rehearsal? Yeah. Well, I've I've, I've sort of I'm house trained now. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's taken it's only taken a couple of decades, <laughs> but I'm a lot better behaved than I used to be. I used to sort of storm around, reducing people to tears, and you know. <laughs> make them want to slash their wrists. Well, I'm, I'm the, I've got, we've got like five minutes, and I, I want to kind of try and draw this to a close to some degree. It's been brilliant talking to you. And, and, what, and another cr- chronological kind of uh, deconstruction, this probably won't be the first podcast we broadcast, but it is the first one I've done. And there's bits which I think have gone very well and bits which I've lot, you know, not kind of got hold of. But thank you for indulging me and allow, allowing me to uh, it was do this. Good, wasn't but well, I, I, for me, it's three stars, really. <laughs> yeah, I think well. it, yeah, I would go for it. I think Stevens's point is valid. But oh, I yeah. just <laughs> wish to God there'd been some kind of opposition. <laughs> what, I was, what I was going to ask you about was look, you started your, your, both of your positions to a degree with dissident writing against cultures. Now you're you you're phenomenally successful with the establishment, and, and with the success comes a certain amount of wealth. You're able to live the lives that you want to live. How do you continue to write? Well, good. I mean, why? Why bother? Now you mention it. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, fuck well, it. Well, I've got to pay the tax bill at the end of the year. Um, well, you never really write for money. Are you still anyway, dissident? Yeah. Are you still dissident? I mean, you know, I'm going to be careful of this word dissident because it's right. such a trendy thing to be. Very good. And, and, and I, you know, I was never really that dissident. It was just that thing that you get when you're young, which yeah. I'm afraid everybody, nobody is immune to, which is that you just, you, you just... It you want to change... The reflexively think, I can do better than that. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I can do better than that. Fucking. And, I um, it's healthy. It's when kind you're of young, stupid, it's healthy, but... but you know. Yeah. Is I'm it not healthy? I mean, I still it in my in my mid-40s, and I'm the same as you. I'm, yeah. But I still feel that in... in Instinct to resist, or I'm not dis- sure that there's disobey. anything to resist anymore. I mean, we were the world is so global, and so you know the me- the media is so pervasive now that, that, that every point of view possibly imaginable is out there, and every dogma imaginable is out there, and so it's not like we're resisting or and you don't want to resist now. for the ch- ch- sake of resist. You don't want to sort of like get into a thing where you sort of like you know you it, want to change for the sake of change. It, or, it, is know. success more helpful than it's Paralyzing or more paralyzing than it's helpful for you, or is that a stupid dichotomy? I don't really feel like I, I don't really understand success, and I, I I find it really difficult to sort of talk about it or to think of myself in those terms. I mean, yeah. it took me at least two years before I could even say I would even admit that Matilda was successful. Not not because I'm <laughs> sort of particularly humble or anything, yeah. just because like I. I, I I long ago learnt to resign myself from thinking about myself in that way, like yeah. because if if I have to think about myself as successful, sooner or later I'm going to think of myself as a failure. And as a person, I'm I'm not very good about uh, you know I, I get a bit sensitive about shit like that, you know. Mm. So what I've learnt to do is resign myself from those things entirely. So it's kind of hard for me to talk about. Yeah. You know, that's a bit of a fucking wussy answer. You've got a better one. Than no, that, it's don't not, you, Jay. No. 
<laughs> it's not a wussy answer. It's just an answer you're a bit uncomfortable with because it maybe exposes more than you'd hoped. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, look, it's it sort of. Um, I mean, yeah, I've never I, really known what success was. Yes. To be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm not being. I'm not. I'm not trying to be precious about it. No. Nope. I'm not being pedantic, but really, I think the secret is, and it's in, in a way, it's a kind of dirty secret. It's kind of a little embarrassing, but I think. I, I don't really know what success is. And, mm. and I, or, or put I it another way, I completely relate to that. I never knew when to stop, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've kept going because I keep thinking, no, I can do better, I can do better, I can do better. Yeah. And this one's going to be bigger and this one's going to be, you know. And um, and it's been pointed out to me recently that I've had a couple of successes. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, nice, it's a nice feeling, but um, I'm still... To be honest, it's a it's an illusion. It's an optical illusion, yeah, um, and you never feel like that something's been successful. You know, you yeah. kind of you, you sort of you, you or you all, we were talking about like like uh, say Matilda or the Curious Incident uh, before this, and we were mm. saying like it, it feel uh, it always feels to me like someone else did it. It's it's mm. not my thing really because there's a bunch of other people in there. And any any time you've got something successful, like if someone talks about I don't know. Utopia. I sort of like, I I quickly find myself reminding them that we, we were a disaster, a ratings disaster. You know, mm. like there's some part of me that doesn't feel that things, you know, can't quite embrace that idea of success. I mean, m money is different, I suppose. Like that's a having money in your life is a is a slight change. You know? Well, I think success also, as we're talking about it, is 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 somebody else's view. You know. Yeah. Of of the success, successful player. It's only your business whether you're successful. It's, up, yeah. it's other people's. Yeah. It's up for other people, you know. Yeah. And and if it don't don't help you writing, then what are you doing thinking about it in a way? It's hard enough to write things without sort of thinking about that, thinking about yourself in the third person like that. I think you know. <laughs> Do you, are you still excited by theatre? By writing a new play for theatre would be my last question. Yeah, I I I've, yeah I I think. I, I recently had a period where I was writing lots of um, stuff for screen and and got uh, doing a b bunch of films and a bunch of, uh, and then I got to uh, the beginning of the year or actually beginning of last year now, I got to write two um, p pieces for theatre and it felt fantastic. I, I've got mm. to say, it, but but it's difficult. Like it's very very difficult. I I find writing for theatre, in some ways, is. It can be very hard, you know, because it's a, it's quite an exacting medium. But it, I really fucking enjoyed it. I felt, felt it, was, it, it, you know, in in it, it, I think it's great, but also difficult as well. Do you see stages in your mind when you're writing scenes? No. The scenes. I, I see very little visually. I, I hear voices really clearly, yeah. but I very rarely see stuff. Yeah. And and what I do is kind of vague, you know, someone with dark hair, someone with, you know, someone standing in the corner. You know, I don't really visualize stuff like that. I'm gonna. I might ask Joe a few more after you've gone in a kind yeah. of like atomized. Break. Yeah, but I want to hear. I want to hear his yeah, answers. Well, am I excited about doing a new play? Yeah, or for theatre in general. I mean. Do you go um, to the theatre often? You, does the form yeah. excite you? Um. Well, you know, the, for me, the stakes are higher with theatre. I always thought of theatre as being like my wife, and <laughs> and movies is like the mistress, you know, <laughs> and or the various mistresses. And you go away, and you have this big adventure. Not that I'm talking from experience, but, but you know, and then, but when you, but, but the wife is is much, much, much more important, and it's much less flashy and less exciting, and there's more sort of pressure in in, in attendance to it. And 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 for me, I'm I'm kind of sort of pay, I take I take theatre painfully seriously. Yeah. So it every now and again it is exciting, you know, just pure pure. Excitement. I mean, sunny afternoon was just pure excitement. Mm. It was just so much fun. Um, 
but I also sort of take it really seriously and I sort of worry about it and um, and uh, get myself into a bit of a state about it sometimes. But uh, you still enjoy going? You still enjoy going at theatre and stuff? Oh, when it's good, but I'm, I'm incredibly choosy as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, how often I, do you go? I don't like an awful lot of theatre. Right. Well, you know, normally I'd like to go to theatre once a week, but I haven't been able to for a while because... Yep. You know the kids and stuff, um, but yeah, you know, usually, usually, once a week or once or twice a month. You know, um, I mean, I used to see lo- loads. Of, I, I, a thing ha- happened a while ago where I realised I was seeing plays by playwrights that I didn't, I'd never liked. Like, there's one or two play. Like, like, there are playwrights that you love. There are playwrights that you you don't like their work, and it's not. It's just a fucking thing. You don't like. Who their are work. they, it's Dennis? Like, right. So uh, <laughs> no, no. Right, but, you I'm, know, I'm gone. I'm, <laughs> But like you know, it's just there must there's got to be got to be people listening to this thinking I fucking hate your work, Kelly. Yeah. You know, and that's fair enough. Like <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, maybe even be people I'm in this room. You. I don't know. But like, <laughs> but like, but like, but then I sort of tell myself like I've got oh, to. You're not... Dennis Kelly. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, it all makes sense. Yeah. I thought you were someone else. But like that, you know, that I've learnt not to go and see plays that I know I'm not going to like anymore. Right. You know, I, I go and see plays that I've got a chance of liking. You know, yeah. but I still, I mean. I still think it's it's a, it's a fantastic medium. Like what what the potential for the medium is incredible. And sometimes I get a bit frustrated that that's you feel that that's not quite realised or that's you know or, or the ambition is small. Sometimes you feel, but then sometimes you just go uh, go and see a play and you just think fuck me, you prick. That's brilliant. Like I, I feeling jealous is one of my favourite feelings. In the I, 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 because I think you know if you're jealous of something, you think. Oh, you fucking! Cock, it's very English. You know? It's very well, English. That resentment of you know yeah. somebody. That <laughs> but it's not resentment. It's, got more it's more than like you, it's Dennis. not resent. It's not about more. But it's like it's like sort of looking at something and thinking you've like I I sort of love that. I love sort of looking yeah. at it and thinking you did something I can't. That's great. I don't know how you did that. One, one of the reasons that's I, great. I've, and we got you know what I mean? I, you sort of like it then, don't you? Oh yeah. Look, I'm I'm so choosy that one in a hundred things do I love, and they kind of then yeah. they kind of reduce me to a pool of mm. you know. Um, and and yeah and and you love it and you and you get incredibly excited in it. Whereas with a you know and if it's horrible then it's really horrible. It's viscerally horrible and I and I start to get, um, you know I start to have panic attacks and you know, my eyeballs roll back in my head and I, I get narcolepsy and you know it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> it's really bad. You know it's really obvious too from people looking at me. Um, Whereas with films, if they're not very good, you or TV, it's not it, very yeah. good. It's kind of okay. Yeah, it's, it's a bit more sort of like fine. It's, yeah. like it's just nice to have a rest and sit down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just nice to get in out of the rain, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> Dennis, uh, I'm I'm gonna let go. you, I might keep Joe for a few more minutes, yeah, but yeah. what a great, great I pleasure. I want to hear all the rest uh, of Joe's answers, but I hope that was all right. It was, uh, I enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> are we off the thing now? Are we? No, we're still recording. Well, what have you got Producer Emily sitting in the... Got to get to a meeting. The, uh, this is the playwright's life. You you know go from interview to meeting to meeting to well, writing. Fuck! I got you. How, how, how many hours on a Friday? How many hours a day have you? How many hours did you write? I wouldn't do that. Day? I wouldn't take a breakfast meeting or a five o'clock meeting. Breakfast <laughs> meetings, I definitely don't do. This. Just like, fucking, get like, how many how many hours did you write today? How many hours did I write? I wrote. Um... Thank you. See, brother. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't have this on the thing. No, we thing can. Like, we can, can say we? goodbye on the. It's <laughs> great. It's really. It's, it's Charlie Kaufman. It's the Charlie Kaufman podcast. How many hours did you write today? Uh, I wrote. Um, I don't know. I, I, I was right. I wasn't writing sort of dialogue, so it's more like a, a, a an cool. outline thing. I'm kind of writing. So it's probably about um, a couple of hours. Yeah, I put a bit. Good in. man. I put What's a bit in. Yeah. Thank you right. very much, Dennis Kelly. Fuck, we get out. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good my favourite way to end the podcast. Good to see you, man. Literally walking out the door. Take it easy. Maybe I'm going to get all of them in the whole series to end. Janice like has that. left people, the building. People walk in and walk out. Um, well, who was the last playwright you read who blew your mind? And don't say Simon or Dennis. Um, <laughs> oh, damn. No, the young. The young, Do you read young playwrights? Do I read young playwrights? Yeah. I, I occasionally read young, young playwrights, and yeah. I occasionally go and see them. But I occasionally sort of read old playwrights and occasionally right. go and see them. I don't have any real so preference. My, so when was the last time you read a play that inspired you? Um, well, I went to see The Flick, and I read that. Yeah. Annie I, bought, I bought that and read it, and, and, and really enjoyed that. Um, and I went to see X, and um, I loved Alice that. McDowell. And I loved Pomona. Um, mm. And... Um, Oh, I can't remember. One of my favourite things about being a playwright is that when somebody comes along like Annie Baker's come out of New York to the UK in the past few years, or Alistair McDowell, who's a Manchester writer, has just arrived, has started writing the last few years. While as a, the middle-aged man in me kind of resents both of them massively, the playwright in me, and I don't actually resent them both massively at all, but the playwright in me is... It feels like we're doing the same job. So when somebody does it bloody well... It's much more inspiring than it is dispiriting, you know. I genuinely kind of yeah. think it's, it's a difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult alchemy writing a good play, and there's so much dross that when somebody comes along who's who's genuinely great, like Ali, um, it's just it, it just fills you with joy. And you know, you talk to him, and you're on the same wavelength because he's ha he's got the same concerns and the same sort yeah. of serious you know application that he bring he brings to it. And there's so much sort of crap around that. I, I always get very excited when I see somebody good, and I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge them at all because I know now, I've, I've discovered empirically that when you're a very young playwright, everybody loves you, yeah, and you can sort of do no wrong. And then as you as you get older and you do more, yeah, uh, people sort of uh, you go you you know you you become a bit stale, you know, uh, for them, and um, uh, th that just happens. It's just you know theatre. The theatre is a very youth-driven medium. It's very susceptible to 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 trends and and very susceptible to the cult of 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 young people. But the playwrights, unusually perhaps within that medium, when playwrights actually talk to one another, I think there's a level of mutual support that I find really moving. So talking to you now, I'm remembering when I was in Ali McDowell's position, conversations we had which I would leave, because although we're the same age, my career started after yours, leaving those conversations feeling bloody grateful that somebody with more experience had taken time to offer me some support. Is that something that... And it's clearly Hanif and April did that for you, yeah. Stephen. Yeah, I mean... Do you, you still do that for something like Ali or with young writers coming... Yeah, I believe really strongly in that kind of community of writers. Mm. And, and it's a bit like the musical community of musicians, which is that if you find someone that you really like and they are prepared to impart something to you, then it's really special. You learn so much more that way than you ever do any other way, you know. Um, and so I always really believed in having mentors and, and have, have, have been lucky enough to have some wonderful mentors. Mm. And, um, but I also just think that um, it's so rare as a writer to find other people whose writing you, you sort of gel with and click with. Yeah. Um, that you want to talk to them and meet them, and then you talk to them and meet them, and you find that as a person, invariably, the, the delight of it, the naive delight of it, is that you kind of click with them as people too. Yeah. It's not like rock and roll, where very often the music you love the most is created by the most obnoxious idiots. You know, <laughs> you, you meet them, and it's just so disappointing. 
Um, what was it like working in that sense? I mean, you know, I don't know. You, you don't need to answer this, but w- working with a hero like Ray Davis, what is that an insight into the different world? It was funny because we, you know, working with Ray was was a very similar thing. I loved the music and had a very deep connection with it. And I remember writing some voices, listening to the Kinks, and yeah. being inspired by 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 that music and those stories. And the, you know, the characters in some voices are Ray and Dave. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I met him, and um, as people, I think we're we're quite similar, and we we got on very well, and we're we're very close mm. in some ways. But then we have such entirely different uh, business exigencies, right, and responsibilities, and 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 preoccupations and commitments, um, and you know, and and the rock world is like that. You know, they they they, they earn millions and millions of dollars and have. Mm. Hundreds and thousands of fans, and and mm. it's a completely different thing, and yeah. um, you know, and then and Nick Cave I worked with on the road, and he became he's become quite a good friend, um, and it's a similar thing. Of I I adore the music, and and then as people we 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 actually get get on really well, mm. um, and that's a very unique and special thing. Most mo- often in rock and roll, and and same with movies. You know the interesting thing about rock stars and movie stars is that their job is to is to project complexity and sensitivity and mystique, yeah. and very often they're quite thick, <laughs> and uh, it's really disappointing, or just or, just, or, or, or you know or sociopathic or you know yeah. power hungry or egomaniacs. Um, yeah. But in theatre, generally, so in music you have these upset, uh, exceptions that I've worked with, but in th- in theatre, most of the playwrights I know, I get on that I like their work, I like them as people too. Yeah. Really yeah. well, and we've you know we've discovered you and me and Dennis and the, and 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 the Lucys, yeah, and Laura that you know you can have this kind. Of, it's lovely to have this kind of group of contemporaries who you you egg, egg each other on and you like each other's work. It's I think it's really fun. I was I, partly partly I think you know we make so little money effectively as playwrights with some anomalies, but on the whole we don't write for money, we don't write for power, we don't run our theatres. We may as well look after each other. Well, that's an anomaly in itself, you know, in the in the in the, in the modern world that, that yeah. we don't actually do it for money. Yeah. And when you go to Hollywood and you get involved in some big racket, yeah, they don't they they don't trust that. They don't believe that. It slips them out. <laughs> yeah. They think they think you're on medication. They think well, you need medication. They or they just think that you're you know they just it fucks with their heads. The idea that you're not actually doing it for money. You don't care. Yeah. You don't care. Everybody in Hollywood is is has got their snout in the trough. Yeah. And they want a fucking Aston Martin out of this, you know. Mm. And when when you when you go and you don't want that, you just want the writing to be great. Yeah. It flips them out and makes them really jumpy. It's anomalous to them, and, and you know, in many ways, most most walks of life, in the in the you know now, are, are, you know, they're about earning a living or making yourself very rich and 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 um, gaining notoriety, and and playwrights are just not like that. I always think uh, there's a fundamental optimism to writing for theatre in a way that there's a fundamental cynicism to a lot of other jobs. Are you an optimistic person? By which I mean, when you write for theatre. Necessarily, you go into collaborations with people often you've not met before, and you trust that they're going to bring their best to the work. Yeah, I think I am fundamentally optimistic. Really, uh, as much as I worry about things, I'm 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 optimistic. And the, and for me, the really liberating point in my theatre career was when I was quite early on when I stopped having that quite common. Um, Neurosis about wanting to direct my own work, about wanting to control my own work, and wanting right. to, to, you know, um, in the nineties certainly, or lots of playwrights wanted to be 
directors too, and some yeah. ended up being directors. And yeah. uh, quite early on, I, you know, there's, there's this wonderful metaphor, which is that you have a dog and you hand it over to a dog water, walker, and it's a Labrador, and, and they go around the block. When they come back, ten, sort of ten minutes later, they bring back a poodle. <laughs> you know, this you hand it over to a director, and he goes off and does his own thing with it, and it's transformed. But I always really like that. Yeah. I quite like that. You know, within reason. I don't want him to do anything stupid, mm. but I do quite like the transformation of it. You know, it's a ch it's a change of state from from the page to 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 the the live. But also in life, and, I mean, your plays, although they're often dark, and there's a darkness to all of your plays, uh, even Sunny Afternoon, you know, which is mm. fundamentally a celebration. But nevertheless, even watching, I thought, the revival at the Young Vic. This will be broadcast months after this conversation. The revival at the Young Vic of Blue Orange was startling. I thought it was a brilliant production. Yeah, I think it's a great production. Really beautifully acted, and the play, I found moving, partly because it had a defiance to it that felt optimistic. That you know, you worry that Christopher's going to go off into the world and be damaged. You worry about the future of those doctors, but nevertheless, the spirit of defiance for me, it felt as though it was written with some by somebody who believed in a future well funnily enough I, I i i get very excited and very happy when something truthful is expressed yeah and it it it, it, it might be dark or despondent seemingly yeah. despondent or cynical you know i you, you know there, there are moments in this production of, of blue orange which are very upsetting i think there's one or two moments that are sort of vividly quite upsetting mm. and sad and i the, i i was i was at the same time, delighted, yeah. and 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 feeling kind of celebratory, feeling that's what theatre is about, and 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 that imbued me with optimism and kind of the joys of spring, yeah. seeing seeing this kind of vividly um, uh, upsetting, um, depressing uh, play. <laughs> Do you read your old plays? Like, when was the last time you read some voices or love and understanding? No, I don't really. I, well, yeah, I, a little bit, a little bit. Once, oh, you know, funny enough, I read Love and Understanding the other night. Yeah, because Paul Bettany rang me up from New York, and we started trying to talk about stuff. And and I thought just for fun I'll reread it. And you know, when I do reread it, sometimes I love it. You know, there are certain plays that I love reading, and I just think that's a great play. And there are some plays which I just don't get it at all. You know, I just think what a load of crap. Do you and, notice recurring themes? Uh, recurring themes in terms of the in your plays, yeah, I think I've got the, a, a lot of preoccupations that are all kind of tethered to each other. Yeah, you know, and and they they're, they're kind of the, the the core ingredients that that Bruce Robinson, who wrote With Man and I, talks about it as a giant stew pot, and you have these core ingredients. Yeah, you know, alcohol, chickens, yeah. you know, motor cars, whatever. They all go in the pot, and <laughs> and in 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 mine, quite obviously and quite self evidently, sort of madness, brothers, mm. relationships, um, paradoxes. Um, I would add recovery. My thinking at the, your plays at the moment is recovery. Just writing the introduction, I thought there's a possibility of recovery in a lot of the plays. It's not existent in all of them, but it's a consideration of its possibility. This sort of breakdown and recovery. Yeah. This sort of people hitting the wall and then exactly, and then there's a kind of vaguely, yeah. <laughs> vaguely, um, uh, what, what is Rick used to say? Redemptive ending. You yeah. Know. Um, yeah. Well, you know, plays in many ways, the good plays are your kind of worst fears and your fantasies brought to life, mm. you know. So, mm. every, and everybody has their kind of personal myth, you know, which is something that the Royal Court has always talked about, Ian Rickson always talked about it. Um, and in some ways you can't, you can't, you know, it's like, um, 
it's like homicide. You, you, you can't eradicate your signature <laughs> from, from, from your handiwork. Wow. You know, the, you, when, when people are killed, when people are murdered by psychopaths in psychosexual homicide, there, there is no way they can, can mask their signature. And that's how profiling emerges. And, and, and with a play, no matter how hard you try, and no matter how constructivist or how contrived you attempt to be, mm. in, in the end, you, you, you can never really hide your hallmark, your signature, you know, um, your preoccupations. And so, so just to finish, the last question. Uh, we're sitting in the sound studio, level five of the Royal Court, literally next door to the theatre upstairs where some voices was. Yeah. <laughs> John Pennell's put his sunglasses back on. <laughs> I thought we were going to go. I thought we were going. It sounds like Do you remember, um, how does this... What's it like coming back here? What's it like coming back here to this building you've had five plays produced here? I think. Is it a building you feel yeah, fondness right. for? Yeah, I love it here. You I love the Royal Court. Yeah, why? I love the Royal Court with, a, with an emotional intensity. Why? Because... Um, well, it's kind of a love-hate relationship. Because, you know, many years ago I did have my 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 spats with them usually because yeah. they didn't want to do one of my plays and then sort of break somebody's arm and then they'd change their mind but, um, <laughs> but I, I have a passionate feeling about it because the Royal Court did kind of rescue me from from a life of drudgery <laughs> and frustration and and um, and it does that for people and and the other reason why I'm passionate about it now you know being so much more mature than when I first started out and having sort of been around the world a few times and yeah. knocked about a bit, I, 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 I know how unique and rare and precious it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, I knew it then. I mean, it, I knew it then in 1994 when I was 25 or 26. I was like, whoa, this is too good to be true. Mm. You know, they're going to encourage me and pay me and <laughs> sort of make a big deal of it. And, um, but I, I feel even more strongly about it now. I think it's really unique and, I, and, and, and it frustrates me that... that um, you know, th I think theatre is very susceptible to trends and fashions, and it, it, it frustrates me that something as seemingly luddite and simple and old-fashioned as the idea of the writer with his script being the godhead yeah. is has sort of gone out of fashion or is in danger of going out of fashion. There are many people, mostly directors, that would love to kind of destroy that idea in in, in the making of plays and the devising of theatre and the and the, the notion of event and content and. Mm. I, st I, I, I still love the fact that there, here's the Royal Court, it's still here. It's still the same little creaky staircase up to the same little theatre mm. upstairs and same proscenium arch and the same metalwork and the same lights out the front. And, and it's been here since I was, you know, really young. And, um, mm. and it, th this, this incredible stuff happens here and it's, it's, as time wears on, it's becoming more and more unique and anomalous. Thank you, Joe Pennell, thanks very much. Thank you, what a pleasure, what a joy. Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, then make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or on iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here, all of the plays discussed here, at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the bookshop uh, at the theatre in Sloan Square. Come to the theatre, come and see the plays. Follow us on Twitter at Royal Court. Follow me on Twitter at Stephen Simon and tune in next week to 
next week's Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Stevens. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. See you later. Ta-ra.